you have your Bibles, if you could open them up to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to be reading just a couple of verses here, and they're really, really familiar verses uh, to you. If you grew up in church or participated in communion at any point in your life, these are going to be familiar, um, almost white noise familiar. But we're going to look at them as a source of uh, incredible hope that we have in Christ. And so if you're like a, a brand new believer, this is a perfect weekend for you. If you're a believer who's been walking with Jesus for 20 or more years, this is a perfect weekend for you. Because this is kind of the reboot that Christians experience. And the, the reset for our faith that we, we undergo on a, on a monthly basis, sometimes more than that. Um, and this actually all comes about um, in the gospel, which is right, and, and the part of the gospel that we're in, that Mark records here is right before Jesus goes to the cross. This is in the upper room. This is the Last Supper that, that we're reading about right here. Mark is a guy who wasn't in that room. Peter was. And, and so all of Mark's account that he's getting all this information from is from the eyewitness Peter. And that's what he's recording. Peter's dictating this information to him, and he's recording it down. So if you could stand as we read God's word. Mark chapter 14 Verses 22 and following. This is at the very, very end of the Lord's Supper when he says this. Or when, when Mark records this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. The passage that we're focusing in on is focusing uh, the first of two uh, sermons that we're having on this subject matter of living with anticipation. Anticipation is just a fancy word for hope. And actually, through our whole Advent series, we were talking about the reality that what hope is and defining it. Hope is just a, a future expectation that we allow to intervene and interfere with our current desperation. So it's not something that we can see or touch or feel right now. It's a, a future hope that we're putting our hope in that actually changes our demeanor, our perspective, our outlook for right now. Regardless of what we're going through, highs or lows, it's a future expectation. So that's what anticipation is. And honestly, every single one of us in this room, we have different wells that we go to for anticipation, for the hope that helps us get, through, get us through the day. Some of us just got through it. Like our hope is, our, is, is getting together with family. Like for, for us, family is huge. It's massive. And we go to that well for our, for our hope to be able to, to get through the day, to get through the year. For others, it's the, uh, a relationship or the potential of a relationship. You might be single now, but you have this anticipation that maybe 2020 is the year when, boom, you meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and it, it's going to be just amazing. That's the well that you come from and that you're going to. Others, for us, it's... Um, what we can accomplish in our grades or our job. And we go to the well for anticipation. I'm looking forward to a promotion. Or I'm looking forward to getting accepted into college. Or I'm looking forward to th this, this pay raise that, that's going to come because I've been working my tail off for this. And we go to that well for the anticipation to help us continue moving on. Some of us, for us, especially um, at the transition of year, it's like, it's like a self-help type of thing. Like this is going to be, you're going to see hashtags of this in the next week all over the place of new year, new you. I hate that expression. Because I'm like, well, 
I like the old me. You know, like, what about, what do I need to change? But then everyone's like, well, yeah, but look, I mean, this year you could actually exercise. Or this year you could actually eat right. Remember how you wanted to eat right last year? Remember how long that lasted? This year's different. You have anticipation of a difference that's going to happen this year. It's going to happen. And you're like, that's going to be it. And we're in a, a cycle in our country where a lot of people have put the well that they're going to for anticipation, for future hope, is, is in politics. And if, if, you're, if the well that you go from, the deepest well that you're coming from is from politics, I'm just telling you that we love you as a church. We're here to pray for you because that's a disappointment, man. And every one of those actually is. For a Christian, we recognize that regardless of how good or momentary or, or temporarily awesome any one of these wells are for happiness, they just don't fit the bill for anticipation, not the deepest sense. And for a Christian, we go to the well that's the deepest. And actually, that, that's what we see, what Christ is focusing on and what in the passage I just read for you. And what we call this is communion, or a lot of times we call it the Lord's table or the Eucharist, which is a fancy word for thanksgiving. The communion, the Lord's table, and the Eucharist are, are synonymous for this experience that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. And I don't know when your first communion was, if you were 7 or 13 or whatever, but the world's first communion did not take place in a church. The world's first communion did not take place in even a, an, an official, organized Christian encounter. The world's first communion was a Jewish festival, the festival of Passover, and, and a lot of us know this. And, and Passover if, was... Way, the way that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, had an opportunity to say, the way that I have the deepest anticipation for the future is to look back. The way that I've got hope and optimism and, and the ability to have an optimistic perspective going forward is to look backward at God's resume, at what God pulled off in the past. Because what he did back then gives me a different perspective on the outlook going forward. And so anticipation for the Jewish people was consistently looking back. And, and that was the Super Bowl of things to look back on for them. That was the event. It was the time where God's people who had made epic strides of, make, of, of accomplishing Genesis 12, that they were going to, God was going to bless them and they were going to be a blessing to the whole world around them. In Egypt, that was taking place through, jo through Joseph. But generation after generation had gone by and, and the Egyptians and the Egyptian government started to look at the Hebrew people not as this blessing, but as, as this curse, it's like this, this population growth that they felt like they had to sustain. And it, it was getting more and more great. And so they started to dissuade them from being a, a, a numeric threat by putting them to work, by enslaving them. That wasn't good enough. Eventually, it got to the point that Egypt adopted policies of genocide to take out the male babies. So that, that, when the, 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 so that if, you can't, if you can't just weed them out, if you can't encourage them just to stop occupying your country, maybe we could just thin them out. That's, how we're, that's our 5 and 10 and 15 and 20-year plan. It's just to thin the herd by killing the babies. And these people who said God made this, this promise that he was going to bless us, we were going to be a blessing for the entire world, and our people were going to be great as the sands of the sea. Is this the promise? Is this? We are, we are shackled. We've been enslaved for, we've been in Egypt for 400 years and we're now slaves. Is this, the, is this the end game? Is this the goal that God has for us? 
And God is faithful. And so God brings in a situation through Moses that he, he liberates the people. He, he um, persuades the Pharaoh through, ten pla- through all these plagues that, this is, you know, that he needs to liberate the people to set them free, to let them leave. And the Pharaoh consistently turns his back on his promises. Nope, that's not going to happen. You're going to stay in the caste that you are. You're going to stay in the platform that you are. You're going to stay helping us be uh, the great country that we are. And so God brings this final plague, and it's through the angel of death. Responding to a country that was causing genocide of all of these, these young Hebrew kids to the king that wouldn't let them go free, God returns the favor and, and actually takes out all the firstborn males. Except for the Hebrew people who trusted God to take care of them. And they sacrificed a lamb and they put the blood over the, the doorpost. And the angel of death actually passed over. And that was such a huge moment for them that they were actually called, like, to be obedient. You would celebrate this event of remembrance of when you were slaves, and yet God stepped in. You were, you were helpless, and yet God stepped in. You were, you were bound to die, and yet God stepped in and passed over. And so the Super Bowl of, of reboots for their faith was to remember how faithful God was to give them hope in the present time and that hope in the present darkness. And that, that was going to be something that they would have anticipation stemming from. Now, right now, we're in 2019, about to get into 2020. And for a lot of us, we're coming in here hope-starved. For a myriad of reasons, relational reasons, physical reasons, uh, interpersonal rela- uh, situations with our friends and, and loved ones, Lots of issues. All of, us, all of us have our own drama and stories that we're bringing into this room right now. We have darkness. We have stuff that we're doing in our own life that we know that we shouldn't be doing. And so the thing that gives us hope for the future is not really built and based on us at all. It's really built and based on the very same thing that they were celebrating in the Passover. Because when Jesus celebrates this particular meal that we just read, the reason that this is such a big deal that they record is because we don't get everything that Jesus said recorded in the Bible. We don't get all of it. But the stuff we get is important. Why is this here? Why is that, the words that Jesus said in that Passover meal so important? It's because every single one of those Jewish kids who sat in that room with Jesus, all of a sudden, after the cross, after the resurrection, come just face to face with the reality of, I've been celebrating this ritual my entire life, and I, it's, it's just become white noise. It's been a thing that we get together with family. We do it every year. The Passover happens every year. But I never realized what it was all pointing to. The exodus was amazing. It was God's work. But what the guy we've been following, who is the son of God, actually has just done, has brought upon the new exodus. And Jesus, in the Passover meal, positions himself at the center of the most important ritual, celebration, festival that they have, the Passover meal. They get together and eat and remember that that moment. The Passover took place on the eve of death, but they were liberated. The new exodus was a picture of God passing over their reality on the eve of the cross when the world would get liberated through Jesus. And so, in a hope-starved world, the Lord's table launches the believer into four reasons to anticipate that good is coming. And actually, we're just going to talk about four cups. Because the Passover meal, we only have in communion one cup. But the Passover meal actually had four cups. And, And the first cup was this. It was the cup that was called the cup of sanctification. Sanctification is, um, everyone, can we just say sanctification together on the count of three? One, two, three. You sound so spiritual. Sanctification is one of those religious words that you just throw out there 
you know, today at Culver's. Just say it. And people are like, oh, you are so spiritual. And that's, it happens. All it means, though, is set apart or separated. And so we talk about it as Christians, as sanctification. is like God has separated me from my sin. He separated me from, from, from the elements of the world that are toxic. That's sanctification. It's, it's God's ongoing work in my life through the Holy Spirit. But in, in the Old Testament, and, and for the Jewish believers who raised the first cup, which was called the cup of sanctification, they were saying, we were in bondage. We were enslaved. And God separated us. He set us apart from our bondage. He set us apart from our captors. And so we raise a cup of the fact that God has got a plan. And God's plan is good. God's plan is liberating. It's not oppressive. Don't you need that? Don't you need to know that there's someone that you can trust? That he knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. My family, we just went to Fort Wayne, Indiana. My parents and my sister and her husband and family live there. They've lived there for like 10 years. And every year, I don't know how to get there. <laughs> to be honest, it's probably because I don't care enough to actually think about it in advance. But I'm just like, I'm relying on my phone. I'm like, yeah, Siri's going to get me there. It's no problem. And I, and I just like follow. But the problem is that sometimes I get distracted, even with, even with the GPS. And I just I, I get off, off the rails. And Julie, every year, she's like, seriously? How many years is it going to take before you know where your parents live? This is not hard. The children in the back could get us there easier. And so I'm like, this year, this is going to be the year. New year, new me. I'm going to get my, kid, my whole family to Fort Wayne, Indiana without the GPS. Why? Because I'm a man. And so I, all of a sudden we start driving and, and there's, some of you laughed way too hard at that. It's, that's what I was thinking. And, and, but my Uncle Dave, we had Uncle Dave in the front, he was in the, the, the front passenger seat, and my wife was in the, in the second row back, and she was like, you know what? This is great. Errol's driving. I'm sure he has GPS going. I didn't. I could take a nap. And she started to fall asleep, but as she's about to fall asleep, she re it's like there was like um, something, like a disturbance in the force. And she just knew that there was something awry. Like, you know what? I don't know if I should have the peace enough to fall asleep. And she sits up and she says, where are we? And I'm like, Julie, we're going to my parents' house because I'm a driving there. And she watches the signs go past, and she picks up very quickly, a lot quicker than I did. Errol, we're in Michigan. <laughs> I didn't laugh. I was really, I was pretty ticked off about that. Apparently, 80, 90, 94. <laughs> and I'm about to celebrate Christmas in Toronto. And I'm like, it's just like, I gave my family an extra state and you're welcome so the thing is, is that that my wife told me and she i haven't told her that i've told you this but she said here's the thing i don't feel at ease i don't have peace to just be able to take a nap in the car because you're driving and i don't know if you're gonna get there or if we're just gonna randomly end up in some other great lake state isn't it amazing to know that regardless of the fact that people consistently disappoint us with their ability to pull off a plan, to have a plan, or even, let's be honest, to have a plan that's in our best interest. That we have a Savior that does. That was the first cup. The cup that illustrates God's plan. The cup of sanctification. But the second cup is interesting too. It's the cup of praise. And it, notice it's not the cup of thanks. It's a cup of praise, which focuses in on God's personality. See, there's a difference between um, praise and thanks. Thanks is, is um, it's a one-and-done type of thing. Somebody buys you lunch. What do you say to them? 
That's right, because you're polite, wonderful people. You say thank you. If someone buys you a gift, you have no assurance that next Christmas they're going to buy you a gift. You have no, nothing guaranteeing that you're even going to like it. But this one was good. What do you say? Thanks. You, you, what you don't say is, oh, thank you, Father. I praise you for this. You don't say that, right? That'd be goofy. That's not praiseworthy. They gave you a gift. You have no confidence. Or if someone like buys you like lunch, uh, like you're in the drive drive-through, and somebody buys you lunch ahead of you, that's awesome. And if you could, you tell them thanks. But you have no assurance that if you follow that car next time, they're going to buy you food again. That's the difference between praise and thanks. Thanks is thanking someone for something that they did, an action that they took. Praise is acknowledging who a person is. They are praiseworthy. This is not a one-and-done action. It's a series of actions that has led to this person being praiseworthy. When we have the cup of praise, it's saying not only do we have a God who has a plan that's in our best interest, he is faithful to keep it. We can trust him because this is not a one-and-done. The Passover is not a one-sparkling situation. It's a situation that we see God's fingerprints all over our life. He is faithful. We can trust him. That is why we praise him. Because this is just who he is. It's his personality. He's faithful to keep the word that he had. To pull off the plan that he gave us. The third cup is important. Because this is the cup that we see recorded in the gospel. The third cup is the cup of redemption. It showcases God's price. The price that was paid. Everyone just say redemption on the count of three. One, two, three. Another awesome spiritual word that will make you sound super theological. Redemption, all it means is to buy back. It's like if you had a piece of property that you lost in a bet, or, or you couldn't pay it off and, and, and somebody repoed it, but you really wanted it. You get yourself out of debt, and all of a sudden you're like, I need to get that back. And so what you do is you put down the money to buy back the thing that you lost. It once was yours, but it's no longer yours, and so you get, figure out a way to buy it back. Now, we think of that in objects and things, but in the ancient world, people thought about people that way. Every ethnicity, every culture had this weird tendency to want to own other people. It's messed up. And, but what they would do is this. Like if you had uh, an uncle that went into debt, he just poorly managed his money, there were cultures that basically said, okay, there's a way for you to get out of debt. You become our slave. And so you continue to work it off. Now, a family member could step in and say, Uncle Eddie is not going to be able to pull off getting out of debt. He's going to be a slave to the rest of his life because he's in so deep. And so we have to step in for him and buy his freedom to redeem him. His redemption is going to come at our price. We're going to buy Uncle Eddie out. And the third cup, the cup of redemption, is the picture of the fact that God, on his own terms, at his own cost, did what Israel could not do back in the Passover times, back in the, in the first exodus. There's not a single Passover celebration where people are like, this is a celebration for what we accomplished. Look what we did. We're amazing. That is not the picture at all. The Passover is a celebration of we were in bondage, but the God we serve had a plan, a good plan for us, and he had the ability to pull it off. And for that, we give him praise, and for that, we also acknowledge that it was his price for us. The interesting thing within the Passover Seder is that even to this day, you have something that ref is reflective. Even though there's not sacrifice of lambs today, there's something that's reflective that represents the lamb. And what is this? It's not a giant saltine. Matzah. 
You go to Jewel, and they've got this all over the place, especially around Passover. They have so much that they actually give our church the extras. And so I like munch on these things at my desk and make a terrible mess. But that they taste like cardboard. But the thing about it is this. That is something that is this big old, like, one-foot square piece of, like, saltine-type bread without the, the salt. And you actually, it's supposed to represent the sacrifice of the lamb, the lamb that was slain that actually was across the doorpost, that, that gave the angel of death the indication we're going to pass over this family, God's price of, of salvation and, and payment. The author of, of Isaiah, he says, when he's looking forward to the future Messiah, he talks about this. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. After AD 70, after the, after the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire, they didn't have a place to sacrifice the lambs anymore. And so this type of uh, bread became the, the replacement. And it's so cool that as Jewish people started to come to know Jesus as their Messiah, 80, 70 on, and when this was introduced, they started to see the reflection of the prophet Isaiah's words in the very bread that they celebrate, the sacrifice. The very fact that it was John the Baptist who, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who comes to take away this, the sins of the world. And look at even our matzah bread. It's striped. It's bruised. And Jesus did that for us. He was a Passover lamb for us. And we see that in, the, in this passage that we just read. He says this, verse 22, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Nobody had done that before. Nobody ever, like, inserted themselves into the story of the Passover. The Passover story is about that time, which gives us hope in our current time. But Jesus says that time was pointing to this time in me. This is my body. Take it. Verse 23, then he took a cup, this is the third cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And, and, and he goes on to, in other passages to elaborate that it's the cup of the new covenant. That this was, this was God's cost to redeem mankind. And Jesus is all of a sudden saying, yeah, it was supernatural what took place in Egypt. And it was God stepping in where people couldn't free themselves. But guess what? I'm about to do something that you cannot undo on your own. You can't undo the effects of sin, but I'm about to do, undo them for you. I'm going to take your unrighteousness off of you. You can't do that. You can't pay for that. Not with a billion years of good deeds. But my sacrifice will. I'm going to take your debt upon myself to redeem you at my price. This is the cup that Christians have been drinking for 2,000 years. The third cup of the Lord's table, the third cup of the Eucharist of communion. This is the cup that we take as a body of believers, celebrating the fact that God accomplished our rescue at his price because we couldn't. This is what we drink to each time we have communion. And the thing that's so phenomenal about that is that you see a God who's not just distant, but a God who has a plan who's able and capable to pull it off and does, which is why he's praiseworthy, and then he does it at his own cost. He doesn't have like a payback system where we pay off the holiness and, that God has given us, the new standing that God has given us. It's, it's a, as if to illustrate God's love for us, but it gets to a place that's even deeper than that. I mean, it gets to the fourth cup. 
The fourth cup is the cup of the kingdom, which seals the deal of that reality. It's as if to say that God just didn't do something for you and then walk away feeling better about himself. He did it for a reason. The fourth cup is the cup of the kingdom, which illustrates and points out the fact that God has a promised presence with us. It was like to say, you know what? God didn't just do that for that group of people back then. He's still with us. We're in his kingdom. Yeah, are we a minority group of people that have very little power? Yes. And yet God stepped in and made us worthy. Are we a group of people that have military might and political prowess? Uh Uh-uh. We have nothing on any of the technology of the nations around us. And yet, when we follow God's lead, it's as if we're walking in a kingdom that's unstoppable. We've got God's presence with us. And so, in the Passover Seder, you would always drink the fourth cup, the cup of the kingdom, except for this Passover. What happens? Matthew records, Matthew who was there records what happens. Jesus tells them, I'm just going to back up here to this verse, verse 28. This is my blood. This is the, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Everything that Jesus did in that Passover Seder, it was so important because everything was a fulfillment of prophecy except for this one. The kingdom has not been finalized yet. It's anticipated. It's coming. It's assured. We're not drinking of this yet. Jesus leaves that room, and before leaving, he says, I'm not going to drink this again until we're able to drink it anew in my Father's kingdom when all has been made new. Until then... We're sipping from this cup and anticipating this. The thing that's so cool about that is that um, the other word for this cup, the cup of the kingdom, identifying the presence of God is is that they they also would call it, the the fourth cup would also be called the cup of betrothal. Because it was was like this, I don't know if if you're married right now, uh, but if, if you remember when you first proposed, the anticipation to be married, to actually to be t- together as a couple, and, and just being so exuberantly excited about that. Um, and, and, and back then, that, that, that was a picture, I mean, for them, they were like, yeah, that's kind of like what it's like with God. It's like we are looking forward to being with him. We're looking forward to celebrating and worshiping him. It's like that, like a 15-year-old, 16-year-old Jewish kid in the first century who wants to go in and propose that the whole family's in on it, both sides are in on it, but before he can actually be engaged, he has to go to the door, and so he would take a cup, a cup of wine, Drinking age was a lot lower then. Cup of wine, this 15-year-old kid would actually bring it, nervous as all get out, to bring it to the, to the door uh, of this girl that, that the whole family had arranged the marriage and everything, but this was still a formality that he had to go through. And he'd knock on the door, super nervous, his voice is cracking. They open, the girl opens the door, and everyone's all there. I mean, this is a big deal. It's, it's all orchestrated. The videographer's been hired, taking the shots, and, and, uh, he just, and he tells her stuff. He's like, you get married to me, and it's going to be awesome for you. Like, it's, I'm going to go, if you say yes, I'm going to go, and I'm going to make this awesome house for you. And it's going to have, like, all these different rooms. It's going to have a jacuzzi. It's going to be phenomenal. And I'm going to go do that. And if you say yes, I'm off, and I'll go do that. All you got to do is say yes. I promise you I'm going to come back for you. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to, like, be lazy in getting the job done. I'm going to get the job done for you. I promise. And so, like, the, he would just be standing there, and this girl has a choice. She could say, ah, no. You were a jerk in the sixth grade, and I've never forgiven you for it. Be gone. Or, more likely, she would say, 
yes. And she would sip the cup. And by sipping, she would be saying, yes. And now that nervous little kid, he's dropped the wine glass. It's everywhere. He doesn't care. He's gone. He runs back to the house. And the thing back then is what you would do is you wouldn't just build a house independent of your family's property. You continue to extend the kingdom of your dad. And, and your, your dad and mom's kingdom continue to spread out. And so what you would do is you would add on to their property and build a new house. For whatever reason that worked for them. But, that, and so, but the thing is that this kid couldn't just run back, put up a teepee, and then sprint back to the girl and say, boom, we're ready to go. He actually had to have a room, a house system that the dad approved of. The dad was the final foreman sealing the deal saying, okay, son, it's ready. Go get your bride. And so the son would be going in. And he's like, no, 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 no. All these angles in this room are off. You're going to kill your entire family. If you let her move in with this, this is ridiculous. Uh-uh. OSHA standards were still something back then. And so he had to like actually make sure it was safe. And then when it was finally done, he would look at it and say, this, this is good. And when the dad gave permission, the son heads on back home to that girl, to her house. Every night leading up to that moment, from the moment that she, she uh, agreed to be engaged to him, she had lit an olive candle, an olive lamp, uh, olive oil lamp. And, and she put it in her window, letting everyone know this, there's a, someone who's engaged in this house. They're engaged to be married, and she's waiting for her prince to come. She's waiting for her, for the, the, for her husband to come and make her his wife. And that kid sprints on back, and the whole family's coming back with him. And then they would go, and they would have a wedding ceremony, and they'd move right into that house. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, the same time frame that this communion is taking place, he's talking, and he just finishes this and says, I'm not going to finish this until we move into my Father's kingdom. And he says this, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And then Jesus dies. And then he rises again. And his disciples are super excited, like a, like a, like a kid engaged, that, that, that is now recognizing they're the bride and he's the groom, and they just want to be with Jesus, the Savior and the King, and, and to make this kingdom thing happen. And said, so when is the kingdom happening? When is the kingdom happening? We've been waiting for this. And he says, it's not for me to decide that. It's the Father's. The Father and Father alone who has that decision. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And until then, you're sipping from this cup, recognizing the price that I've accomplished that bleeds into every heartache that you have, every dark part of your own heart and the darkness of hearts that have victimized you and gives you hope that's beyond any of the other wells that we dip into. And every time we do that, we step into this. We step into the recognition that we have not drunk from this, but we're, we're anticipating it. Whenever we leave here and we step into the mission that God has called us into, the way that we treat one another, the way, the way that we submit our life to him, even when we don't get it, even when we don't feel like it, whenever we let the darkness of our life be impacted by the light of Christ, we're anticipating this cup, the cup of the kingdom. And one day, one day, we will drink this together with our Savior. When he's made all things new. Amen? I don't know what you're going through, but I know that a lot of you are going through some really difficult times. You have a deeper well to hope from, to anticipate that good things are happening than any of the things that we invest in because of the fact that we have a God who has a plan, that it's in his very personality to pull it off, 
that it's at his price that he's accomplished our salvation, our rescue. And we have something to look forward to that's better than any of the things that catch our eye here and now. As a church, we come to this third cup once a month for a reboot of that anticipation. We're recognizing what God did in the past that gives us hope to look forward to his return in the future. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 11 that we don't do this haphazardly. We do this soberly. We evaluate. So as you leave, if you're a believer, this table is for you. We're inviting you to leave your row on the left-hand side and to go and get the bread and the cup, to return to your row on the right-hand side and spend time soberly evaluating your life. What areas of your life are still in bondage that need to be sanctified and separated from the sin that entangles them? Because you have a Savior you can trust to do just that at his own price. Go ahead and get the bread and the cup right now. Go on both sides of the table and we'll take it together in just a moment.